HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel. It must be 3 p.m. on Tuesday. Um, we're here taping at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn on a steamy, steamy day. Uh, today's guest, a very interesting trading woman, Natalie Jaramajenko. She is the director of the Environmental Health Clinic at NYU, an associate professor of art, uh, computer science, and environmental studies, with a Ph.D. in space system engineering. I bet you're all wondering what that has to do with food and or art, but plenty, plenty. Um, she, for years, has been creating these kind of interfaces, these ideas, social, political, um, things that, you know, affect each other that you wouldn't necessarily think are corollary. Uh, first read about her project called, well, the slightly morose uh, suicide box relating the Dow Jones index to people jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And more along the food line, a 1999 project called One Trees, where she cloned walnut trees and planted them amongst uh, in San Francisco. Is that correct? In San Francisco, in pairs, so that um, you know, over the years, you'll see there was a hundred genetically identical yeah. uh, black walnut hybridized. Well, it's a it's a paradox tree actually, which is a black walnut and uh, an F1 hybrid. Um, oh, so it has both elements on the same tree. It's actually, it's it's called the paradox tree because Luther Burbank named it that. It was the first example of hybrid vigor. Yeah. So you had a puny English walnut tree that crossed with a, a native Californian black walnut. And they created this monster <laughs> tree yeah. that, um, that has since been used as rootstock in commercial walnut production. 
And so there's a lot of genetic interest in this. Um, so it's like a precursor to the GMO movement, uh, the larger hybridization of certain vegetables and fruits. It was actually precisely at and about that issue. Yeah. Because we took the we took these clone trees and we planted them in pairs in different microclimates and different contexts throughout the San Francisco Bay Area so that over the next, you know, 60 years, we'll be able to see the difference within... Uh, between the pairs and within the pairs, right? Just how much will does the uh, how much do the genes matter? Yeah. How much does the you, know, you can really see that with these? Yeah. So there's a biannual bike ride we call the Tour de San Francisco. <laughs> the Tour de San Francisco. And uh, um, yes, the One Trees Two Wheeling event. And in there we actually have kind of a conference on wheels where we talk about the growth responses yeah. and what's going on. So I mean, they are bre- bearing fruit, not right now. That is digestible i mean it's not the thing about the paradox tree and the mule and all of these other f1 hybrids that exhibit unusual vigor yeah is that they put the energy that would otherwise go into reproduction into growth yeah that's why you have mules right because they, they're not actually very good at reproducing yeah the same is true with the paradox tree but they do produce these little proto nuts but in fact, as I was um, trying to convince the um, San Francisco Public Works Department that I could plant these street trees with the help of, this is before the urban forestry movement really got um, off, but with a great deal of help from the Friends of the Urban Forest in San Francisco and the Exploratorium and many other people. But they were very concerned about the tripping hazard, Yeah. Right? That, that, oh, these trees will bear fruit. Yes, cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> trees do that, right? So it, it sounds <laughs> like they didn't think of uh, the efficiency over the ephemeral nature of, you know, just having these beautiful trees that were, like you said, mules and, you know, they're, were for yeah, not. They're, they're never quite mules, right? But the idea that we treat these fruit-producing, food-producing engines, you know, carbon sequestering, extraordinary, the new citizens yeah. uh, of, of every urban center trees we treat them as images as kind of static little elements for decorating this neatly spacing along yeah. the the street and not as dynamic adaptive systems that are in fact whole habitats that support uh support many other organisms that produce fruit and it's part of their you know, ecosystem's function that you know improve the air quality and the water quality and do all these other critical environmental services so kind of really changing the cultural imagination to understand trees as infrastructure and yeah. valuable and critical parts of our urban lifestyles yeah is a big shift that of course most bureaucracies have not yet digested well i think you also proved a point uh, during your I, what is the title of the fish on zoloff project uh, that's actually called Amphibious Architecture Towards yeah. a Fish Restaurant. Yeah, um, it was a very interesting study where she set up uh, 100 polycarbonate buoys in uh, the Hudson River, um, and they would glow when fish swam past. Yeah, it wasn't quite 100. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. but we'll say for Detailed imagination, details, right. many uh, <laughs> yes. buoys in the Hudson River, and they would glow when fish swam past. Um, mm, let me just yeah, correct yeah, a little. Um, so there was two layers of lights, the... Um, the there was a top layer of lights that shifted it was always on shifted from a warm red color to a cool blue or green color um, when dissolved oxygen was low or high and so it was a display of water quality the uh, the bottom layer of lights which was right on the water whenever a fish swam under a school of fish they would um, they would light up so you would see the fish would leave a trail of lights through the array of buoys so 
a low-resolution display of fish presence. Yes, it was kind of luminescence. Yes, yeah. it was. But then, so, you know, the first question people asked when they went, there was two installations of it in the Bronx River and the East River simultaneously. And uh, people, of course, asked, are there fish? There? Yeah. And, uh, of course, they saw, yeah, there's fish there. And then the interesting thing is what happens next, right? Because now you know that there are, you know, that you have these non-human organisms as neighbors. You know, what do you do? Um, so you text them, yeah. actually enough, and they text back. And, yeah. <laughs> and you initiate um, uh, a, you know, a relationship. So there's business cards with the organisms um, and their contact details, if you want to, you know, smooth with yeah. your your Rub elbows with the fish. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sup scup. You could follow the scup and get updates from the herring. And the most popular organism, non-human organism, in, in the amphibious architecture towards a fish restaurant project was the beaver, mm-hmm. which was the f- is is still the only and the first beaver to build a lodge in uh, New York City in over 200 years. Yeah, and that beaver is housed where now? Well, he lives, he's uh, housed um, under his own steam with a little help from me, unwittingly. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, he took the cable that we were securing the, the, um, amph- uh, the amphibious architecture array and, you know, clearly inspected it and thought, oh, this is strong and yeah. durable and this would be good for building this is a lodge. exactly what I needed. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Natalie. <laughs> and he cut out a nice big... It took, it took us weeks to figure out what was going on. There was nothing wrong with the software. There was nothing wrong with the sensors. The buoys were all working. Yeah. We had just not counted on the beaver, you know, being a marvelously adaptive urban organism, using the materials he had available yeah. to produce whatever he... But I, I, I don't want to lose sight of uh, the, the fish, actually. The we'll fish. return to the yes. beaver <laughs> shortly. Um, where did you find in your data that there was a kind of an odd or interesting anomaly that was happening? Um, and how did you convince the environmental, you know, uh, uh, you know, officials to allow this project to show that there was a problem happening in the rivers? Well, you know, the thing is that water quality is very complicated. And um, the fact that we have a medieval... Uh, storm combined sewerage overflow system yeah. in the oh, well, city. I grew up in Croydon and Hudson so I've, I've oh, okay, seen the dam okay, yeah. yes. so the um, uh, there's there's actually been a lot of studies uh, I think what you're asking about is the the SSRIs that the fish are on yeah. that actually came from uh, earlier work by a number of um, scientists who turns out that these SSRIs, which these anti- are antidepressants yeah. like Zoloft yeah. and Prozac and, and a number of um, other associated ones, are kind of novel molecules that aren't found anywhere. So we know when we find them in fish where they've come from. Right? Yeah. They've come from yeah. pharmaceuticals. And so in the Whitney... You don't Ryan, think there's like a little fish drug dealer swimming I around the Hudson? I don't know. Or there's <laughs> someone, some kid out there who's taking <laughs> feet. I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it Actually, um, it becomes a wonderful trace of just how connected we are to these yeah. organisms. By re- you know, reverse, the, um, the major source of mercury in your body and my body and the breast milk of, uh, you know, the American woman and the um, in the cord blood of the newborn uh, American baby is from mercury, uh, is from fish, the major sources, actually. So we're in a kind of feedback cycle, if you will, What's, what we're ingesting, they're ingesting, and what yeah. they're ingesting, we're ingesting. And that's, that's the essential structure, that's mutualistic coupled systems approach 
that is really difficult for us to culturally understand and to respond to. Yeah. And I think it changes our whole, uh, you know, what it is we can do about the you know massive environmental systems kind of uh, like issues. this unintentional symbiosis that's happening that people don't realize they're part of this greater you know infrastructure exactly I mean, most people wouldn't realize that they're intimately connected that they're sharing their you know reproductive pill or antidepressants their pharmaceuticals their medicine cabinet yeah. with the local organisms what they're right? actually paying affects <laughs> right. what they eat as right. a didn't want to have to put it as blunt as that that's right uh. so but there's a there's a couple of um, editions of the um frequent um the nutrition facts but it's faqs uh, which is frequently or infrequently asked questions that actually the exhibit in the whitney a couple of um biennials ago yeah uh, it traced that when you pee in the toilets at the Whitney, where these antidepressants or pharmaceuticals that you are on, where they go through the um, New York City water infrastructure and then through the community structure of the food web that we depend on, so through the birds. And it turns out, of course, that fish, uh, the remaining amphibians and the birds are all on antidepressants. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I just find it fascinating to think that, you know, literally excrement or th- what people kind of use as an end process of a meal is mm-hmm. actually affecting the meal itself. Exactly. Um, I mean, people know compost, people know manure going to farms, but don't realize that their additives um, being put in food or ingested separately of the meal actually are affecting uh, certain ingredients per se. And, Absolutely, and I think that's where the, this idea that nature is somewhere else, that nature is in a little box that we call a park or a big box we call Yellowstone National yeah. Park or that you know, or somewhere outside, you know, that it's actually nature is, these natural systems are in the air we breathe, the food we, we are so intimately and viscerally connected that this kind of delusion is that nature is somewhere else, that it's a pretty image that you escape to and take a vacation in or go camping in is, is like uh, a delusion that's really problematic and certainly yeah. um, what I call sort of the conservation of preservation environmentalism um, this uh, that relates very much to preserving the rural agricultural production you know this kind of sentiment about yeah. um, you know that image of the first lady with her 17th century pitchfork and the you know, 17th yeah. century vegetable garden in the White House was, you know, it's just not productive. Yeah. <laughs> it's not because we, we've, uh, we are agents in this, in this system, right? We are, um, we are interacting whether or not we believe we are. Yeah. And so the, I call it suicide environmentalism, that, this idea that, you know, I call it suicide environmentalism because a couple of my students have independently come to me and said, you know, if I, uh, I'm an environmentalist, you know, and I use, I print on both sides of my paper and I, yeah. don't, I don't eat meat and I, you know, and I really watch my diet and I don't drive, you know, I take public transportation, but wouldn't the best thing for me to be to do is to suicide, right? Because then, you know, my carbon footprint will be less. I'll yeah. consume, I won't, I'll eat even less meat, right, products. You know, this, this idea that the way that we can act in the world is, is all about what we can't do as opposed to what we can do and that we have the capacity to make that good. Yeah, and I mean, do you have an idea or a list of things that you suggest to people that they can do to even lower their carbon footprint? I mean, what what are the first things? Is it eliminate your car? Is it ride the subway? Is it eat less meat? Well, 
Yeah, the, the environmental health clinic is actually set up to address the environmental health issues that people have. So anyone can make an appointment. It works like a, you know, a health clinic at any other university, except people who come, you know, come with their environmental yeah. health concerns, and they walk out with prescriptions for things they can do to. An, and it's environmentalhealthclinic.net, correct? Yes, yes. exactly. And. Uh, so, and we, the people who come are called impatients rather than patients <laughs> because they're too impatient to wait yeah. for traditional legislative responses to improve environmental health. And so, it's not a menu of here's the ten things you can do to save the world by any means. Yeah, it's drawing on the particular lifestyle concerns. You know, starting with the actual concerns of a person to create these lifestyle experiments and these uh, co-produce these projects that can measurably improve environmental health because we don't know the answers. There isn't a simple list yeah. of formulas. We ha- need the creative energy and um, the exploration and the, you know, the work of an experimentation, what I call lifestyle experiments. Yeah. Well, what All I thought was interesting, a, a prior project that you had done, is it called Ooze? Zoos? Um, Z-O-O-Z. Uh, ooze is yeah. zoo backwards and without cages, and that's an institutional framework for a whole set of interfaces between human and non-human organisms yeah. in urban context. But I thought it was a very interesting way of bridging the gap. Um, what Natalie does is kind of uh, create these uh, actions uh, that humans do that mirror that of non-humans or animals. So you get an understand, you know, putting somebody in somebody else's shoes in in a sense, and. Um, so you can have ride, you know, drive your goose avatar yeah. <laughs> and, um, and interact with actual geese yeah. and the, your robotic goose avatar um, that you actually you wear a little um, screen sunglasses with a goose nose. <laughs> but um, you, you can talk to the geese, so you can issue pre-recorded goose words saying hi. Or, you know, yeah. um, through ventriloquism, you can do your own imitation of goose language. And then the robotic goose will sample back two to four seconds of what the biological geese do back. And through this as a, as a collective intelligence process, I uh, would argue and have tremendous evidence that we can actually learn goose. Yeah. <laughs> what other animals have you uh, put in this experiment? Um, uh, quite a number. The Newberger Museum of Art, there's currently an exhibition of ooze and a number of other projects, the Environmental Health Clinic projects, and how stuff is made and how it can change, and the Bureau of Inverse Technology. So they're, they're there. Um, one of the things that's there is addressing uh, rhinoceros beetles, which are the really the heroes of the underworld and the strongest animals in the world. Yeah. So this is a, a interface that sets up man versus beast, the strongest animal in the world, and it's a rhinoceros beetle wrestling device that scales human <laughs> forces down to rhinoceros beetle scale and rhinoceros beetle scale up to human forces. Yeah. So you can take on the strongest animal in the world, and I can take uh, wages on <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> man versus beast. Yeah. How many fights have actually occurred? Uh, three, and there were several injuries yeah <laughs> so, so i'm assuming uh, i'll go to the rhinoceros beetle 3-0 for him all knockouts the rhinoceros <laughs> beetle beat the human in all, all instances. Uh, actually um it's not clear i mean we've got to get the motivation working i um tend to challenge on behalf of the rhinoceros beetles the kind of icons of masculinity the kind of hemingway-esque characters that uh that 
you know, uh, like museum directors and architects and, you know, <laughs> uh, constructors. Bruno Latour, we've just issued an um, interesting challenge to yeah. wrestle the rhinoceros beetle. Um, and so we have uh, several species, actually. Uh, we have seven pairs uh, of the rhinoceros beetles um, in the Neuberger Museum currently. We have to... There has to be girls there for the the boys to be ready to fight, right? But they're extraordinary organisms. They're amazing. Uh, You know, they are... um, This this idea that they... um, they are the, the caterpillars of the underworld, if you will, the yellow yeah. heavy lifting equipment of, of the underworld. You know, they, they churn up this extraordinary strength. What's it for? You know, and this absolute, they're, like a, they're like a VW beetle that can fly with little 10-foot transparent wings, and it's as if a VW uh, uh, had a, an elk on its yeah. <laughs> attached as the figurehead, right? And they're biomechanically impossible yeah. right? to translate it into a scale that we're more familiar with. They, they can carry a building on them, right? 40 times their weight, right? They, they're just... T- so to have a visceral and uh, wrestling event with them is, uh, you know, a way to really uh, experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break and come back to more man versus animal. And... We have not forgotten about the beaver. We're going to tell you more about him okay. soon. Michael Harlan Turkel, you're listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. Back. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, and you're listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I first wanted to thank our sponsor, Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single source supplier of free range, all natural, grass fed, and grass finished beef since 19, 1865. Didn't want to slight them in 100 years. Uh, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable as and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more info, go to www.hearstranch.com. And I'm back with Natalie Jermajenko, the director of the Environmental Health Clinic at NYU. And priorly, we were talking about um, her amphibious... 
Amphibious Architecture Project. Uh, yeah. Um, and Towards she, a fish restaurant. Exactly. She just wanted to clarify how it related back to the fish restaurant. Right. Because we're talking about food. Oh, yeah. Right? We, we are talking about food. You know? So, Roundabout, but... Not just drugs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the issue with the... Uh, why this interface sets up interaction. Um, what happens with... Wherever there's urban animals, wherever there's animals, there's always a sign, do not feed the animals. Yeah. And you've got to ask, why? Yeah. Why not feed the animals? And, the, and, you know, the idea is that, oh, you'll interfere with them, right? Or you'll make them dependent on you. And I, or, or Because that, by putting a sign there, you didn't interfere with their... Right. Or by, know, yeah. <laughs> by driving along the freeway that cuts off the migration route to Yellowstone National Park. You, yeah, yeah. You know, you've limited the nutritional resource. Exactly. Course, I see no hand in man there. <laughs> right. We're changing the entire global climate. Yes, we're interfering <laughs> yeah. with the animals. So can we, in fact... Um, you know, make that interference good. So the amphibious architecture interface, like any other interface, you know, immediately people know there's animals there. They reach in and they grab a Dorito or, you know, chewing gum or whatever they have to hand. That sign, do not feed the animals, is only as ubiquitous as the desire to do so. Yeah. So we get this um, exchange, which we'd really like to make better. So we developed a lure, a fishing lure. The hook is there is no hook. Yeah, um, and uh, it's actually nutritionally appropriate. So a school bus full of kids can oh, there's fish there, and then they can offer actually nutritionally appropriate food that w- could augment the fish population. Moreover, what we've included in um, the lure is a chelating agent called chitinase, which is um, a what a medical grade product used uh, to treat you if you had mercury poisoning. When um, the fish ingest it through the lure, it binds to the bioaccumulated heavy metals and PCBs, complexes, and then passes out as a harmless salt, right? So it's less yeah. reactive, and it settles into the silt and is effectively removed from bioavailability. So not only can you set up a, you can set up, you know, a collective significant environmental remediation, just out of that kind of desire to interact with the animals, that desire to be recognized. And, of course, the fish realize what well, lights go on, Food is likely to appear. People realize yeah. <laughs> the um, lights that go on. Oh, fish are likely to be there. And we set up a, a, a feedback cycle that can be positive, generative, and can augment our biodiversity and our environmental health. Yeah, that that I mean, it's it's both happy and sad that it's come to this. Um, in that, it's happy because it's aggregating, you know, interest. Mm-hmm. But it's sad to think that you have to put all these bells and whistles associated with trying to in a sense uh, purify not just the fish but the idea of where the fish live um, that you have to you know have lights that you have to have uh, sustenance healthy sustenance uh, to then you know dole out to these uh, you know aquatic creatures Um, so I mean there there are all these things that hopefully through rote will become natural Yes, and I think that I think we need to not just the technical solutions, but we also need the institutional reframing, which is why we um, the towards the fish restaurant, of course, is where you feed fish rather than eat them. Yeah. But this whole cross species food that we actually share nutritional resources that we actually, you know, that what the fish eat, we, you know, that we're connected. That's hard for people to digest. So we've framed that as. Um, We've initiated a cross-species supper club called the Cross-Species Adventure Club with Emily Bolt yeah. and with me here, Desai, and, and with um, Catherine Kramer, who you're having on soon, I hope. Um, and so, uh, and this is a way the Cross-Species Adventure Club is 
incredible meals where we can really explore the ecological interrelationships that the idea that you know uh, what geese eat yeah uh, we don't eat the, the goose dinner we don't eat what we don't eat the goose we eat what the goose eats right so in that way we realize oh we eat the same stuff yeah so it's once removed right yeah. we eat the same stuff we live inside the same system yeah. we depend on the same resources what's in their interest is in my interest as yeah. opposed to this kind of ethnic cleansing we have going on at the moment of shooting all the geese yeah euthanize in prospect park yeah, yeah you know how round them into tanks yeah. and, and gas them, right? That's in the, these uh, horrifying images of um, treating other organisms in this way that we've had in the past that we need to kind of figure out how we can do that better. So yeah. the charge of the Cross Species Adventure Club, which is really the most food, directly food-related work, is um, but what's not food-related, right, um, is to, you know, it, that we can design our food systems not just that they reduce the distribution costs or the exploitative labor practices. It's not just about reducing the negative impact of our food production systems, but we can actually design food systems that augment biodiversity and yeah. improve environmental health. And that's the charge of the environmental of the uh, Cross Species Adventure Club. What I also found fascinating is also the idea of regeneration. Um, specific side example was seeing a video of you eating a salamander or was it newt tail salamander this tail. Is a salamander tail could you explain a little more about that well that's a series of uh from the uh lifestyles of the wet and slimy <laughs> um uh chapter and um dinner uh, where we're exploring wetlands uh, because actually this whole north wet northeast verdant green northeast area that we live in is is really a machine for producing salamanders. Yeah. If we rolled all the amphibians into a ball, frogs and, and salamanders, um, and rolled all the vertebrates into a ball, all the all the deer and coyote and you know rabbits and um, squirrels and mice and things into a ball. The size of the amphibian ball would be four times that of the of the uh, vertebrate ball, yeah. right? So that's what we produce around here really well and really easily. So how do we figure out how to to work with this particular ecosystem, what's abundant in this ecosystem? And salamanders, because they have such predatory pressure on them because of their number, they, you know, they feed, the energy transfer they affect between the ecosystem and birds and vertebrates is extraordinary but they've developed a monopoly on the technology of limb you know yeah, regrowing yeah. your, your like limb like starfish you yeah. cut off a leg and yeah, it grows and, back and they'll grow it back so that's that can be up to half their body mass so they can there's one species of salamander that can drop it at will yeah tail so it's more like milking a cow and it gets us towards what is probably one of the grand challenges of the 21st century uh, you know victimless meat and if if we can produce a meat that vegetarians eat, right, which is one of the with the goals of the Cross Species Adventure Club. What meat would vegetarians eat? I would there if a meat is um, and augments environmental health, increases the biodiversity, would that be palatable? Yeah. And I would argue maybe it would be. So that that's um the salamander tail cocktail. Yeah. Gets us towards um uh, exploring what this particular ecosystem can, hey, can produce. You, can you explain a little about the plating of the dish? Because I found that also very exhilarating. It was a salamander tail with like a pipette stuck, you know, in the tail as a serving device and right. a sumac solution. Yeah, th- this is, I, you know, I have to take 
um, give credit where credit is due, Miha Desai, who is the molecular gastronomist that I work with, um, had came up with this idea of how to make it I know, just really a spectacular yeah. experience where um, the salamander tail, I've not yet figured out how to reap salamander tail so that was actually a gel and molded salamander tail yeah that, um, <laughs> you don't have the, a salamander tail plucking farm where, i don't yeah, not yet but, <laughs> but we you know, yeah. anyone out there interested i can um <laughs> i'd support it the um so uh, me has um worked to produce a uh, just a delicious cognac contact co- cocktail that was then you shot the you know the you know the the living organism would actually have a there's a shot of blood that comes yeah. after it, but that's a, a really tart sumac mm, deliciousness that um, was a chaser to yeah. the tail. What, what were a couple of the other dishes, uh, either during past Cross X Species Adventure Club meals or an upcoming one, um, which is happening soon? Yeah, on the 21st, Saturday the 21st at the Newburger Museum, where we're really looking at cooking with oil, and that is the ecological effects of the oil spill, which is... It doesn't sound delicious, but I promise you it will be. Um, towards that uh, and the current f- you know, fascination of the main centre of research is on wetlands. And wetlands are a critical ecosystem that we, um, you know, are culturally in the swamps, right, in the bogs. They kind of, we've, n- we've not yet realised that they are the best ecosystem for sequestering carbon dioxide. They're biodiversity hotspots. They're critical for, you know, protecting both the marine ecosystem and the freshwater aquatic ecosystem and for protecting the soil um, and the terrestrial ecosystem, right? These are uh, only originally 8% of the entire U.S. land mass. But yeah. They did all of this incredible work and we should, we still have ongoing wetland loss. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, same thing with rainforests around the world. Everyone right. knows the Rainforest Alliance, but right. I mean, there is also the Wetlands Preservation right. Fund. And right. So these are um, exploring wetlands as a um, as a new cultural resource is um, one of the um, things we'll be t- com- uh, talking and have done a lot of menu development around. Um, the upcoming dinner, um, wetlands are, of course, the best defense we and there's a lot of talk about we have to protect the wetlands no in fact wetlands are the things that will help us digest the oil will help the yeah. oil the wetlands can take these kind of the resilient ecosystems that we don't understand very well but we need them and we need massive amounts of them for dealing with the extraordinary um uh, oil spot that we have uh, but you know to explore what it is the wetlands can do there's a whole series of um uh, in flight from the in flight menu, which I'll explain. There's a connection. Well, yeah. <laughs> in fact, most of the major wetlands have been degraded in the name of flight, and the FAA has created a new class of aircraft called the Light Sport Aircraft, which uh, is the 35 planes coming out on this. It's now $3,000 in a weekend to get yeah. a pilot's license, and you and I could use this as an opportunity to radically change how we get around. But the, one of the uh, planes, several of the planes that are coming out, are you know, like the, the U.S. Airways um, uh, landing last year, you know, realized, oh, we have all this infrastructure that's wet, so let's do amphibious planes, uh, let's yeah. do wet landings. And so instead of uh, airports, which, of course, are all built on cheap, flat, uh, swampy land that was nearby and now is actually understood as critical wetlands, yeah. <laughs> JFK, LaGuardia, you know, we could, in fact, use this as an opportunity to uh, to build wetland 
landing strips, wet landings, if you will, uh, to create these biodiversity hotspots. So there's a whole in-flight menu of cocktails that uh, explore wet landings because flying is all about landing. Yeah. So one of the uh, other really yummy, my favorite dish from the um, from the edible cocktail in-flight menus uh, is um, something called wet kisses, a marshmallow for fro- a frog formerly known as Prince, which is a... Um, a marshmallow, of course, a wetland marshmallow. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is also actually a cognac violetta base, um, but has in it an ingredient um, called libidum. Um, and it's the purple actually is augmented by what libidum, which is a ubiquitous soil bacteria uh, associated with wetlands, that is the only protection that we have in the greatest species extinction crisis the world's currently facing. So since the dinosaurs, frogs and amphibians are now disappearing at a rate that we've never seen before, mainly uh, one of the big culprits is the chytrid fungus, which is something that has come out of um, the the global distribution of African clawed frogs, which were used for pregnancy tests. (laughs) So they used to take the urine of potentially pregnant women, inject it under the skin of a male or female African clawed frog, and then if they produced an egg sac or sperm, sperm sac, they'd write you back and say, oh, you're pregnant. Right? That <laughs> they'd was write you back. It wasn't just a plus minus at that time <laughs> on the stick. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It was, it was, um, so these things are, uh, these African claw frogs who endemically had the chytrid fungus in their, their microbial community and their skin, you know, were released when we went to paper-based and other forms of, so since the 70s have kind of become invasive throughout Australia, the U.S., um, uh, South America, throughout Europe, and um, the chitwood fungus, the only thing that the frogs and salamanders have, it moves down the river, it just, you see hundreds of belly-up frogs just killed by this chitwood fungus. Yeah. The thing that protects them on the skin microbial community is this libidum, right, that produces a powerful anti-purple, anti-fungal violosium. Um, and so that's what's in the uh, wet kisses marshmallow, so that when you actually bite into the marshmallow your lips are inoculated with libidum <laughs> and equip you to kiss any frog that you might come across wonderful. and um and save them from well, the deadly chitwood fungus that is just an absolutely wonderful um end to this fascinating talk i'm sorry we don't have more time but do you know that you still have tickets available for the Crosshex Species Adventure Club? Yes, we do. Excellent. So, um, you know, contact Natalie through the environmentalhealthclinic.net. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to use this horrible pun, but levitum it up, you know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Help out the wetlands um, and understand your relationship uh, past just where your food comes from, but where your food lives. And um, I hope this was an enjoyable and enlightening show. This is Michael Harlan Turkell, your host of the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you again to Hearst Ranch for sponsoring. And uh, shout out to Jack Inslee, our producer, and Nat Wiener, our engineer. And I hope to see you back here next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Cheers. Cheers.